Okay, well, let's get started. Uh, hello and welcome to everybody who's watching live. Uh, this is the part two of the conversation with Richard Boothby, looking at the book Embracing the Void. And many of you are also doing the book study, which we started uh, yesterday. We're taking eight weeks going through every chapter. Uh, so what I want to do uh, maybe as a beginning is do a little summary of, I think, kind of the main point of, of last week's conversation. And then Richard, if you want to add anything to that, and then I've got a couple of questions to kind of move us into the second section. So the, the way I kind of saw last week is that to be human uh, is to be oriented to a dimension of the other that is what we call what Freud called das Ding, this this enigmatic dimension of the other, this unknown dimension of the other that fascinates us and that frightens us and that is the cause of our anxiety. Um, and this is very much something that uh, stays with us through our life, something we actually didn't talk about explicitly last week and maybe you might want to say something about it but is that another uh uh piece of terminology from Lacan the uh, objet putia um and its relationship to dusting but basically that this notion of the unknown dimension of the other continues to haunt us and fascinate us in our lives and this will connect in some way with with the religious impetus do you want to add anything to that I can actually um we didn't cover it at all last time and it's really worth um uh emphasizing this both to clarify Lacan's concept a bit but also it's just intrinsically really an interesting part of all this if as you're saying Lacan asserts that the relationship to what is unknown in the other really is a formative milestone in the evolution of the human being and the emergence of a human being in infancy this awareness that 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 the mother figure and every other fellow human being poses this kind of unanswerable question about all above all what they desire and of course what they desire of me what am i in their eyes i mean we all know that uh development often takes it almost typically takes this this path that the growing human child tries to second guess, tries desperately to, to, to fill in the blank about what the parent wants of them, what will please them. So we style ourselves as uh, the sort of fulfillment of what we dimly sense and try desperately to figure out about what the other really uh, wants of us, why they love us and how we can make them love us more. Objet A uh, is a kind of clue, you might say, to this whole problematic of, of what is unknown in the other, but especially also when we remember that what is unknown in the other is a kind of uh, correlate, a kind of partner, a kind of also a kind of mode of access to my own unknown, my own unconscious. So for Lacan, I come to myself, my truest and most innermost self, I come to that by a detour through the other, which of course, as you say, 
involves anxiety. By the way, this, this way of looking at it illuminates what Lacan repeatedly says is his most kind of fundamental assertion. That is, human desire is the desire of the other. Mm-hmm. In some way, my innermost longings are always circuited through this detour in what I struggle to know about what is unknown in the other. Yeah, I mean, I love the idea that, you know, even our most intimate fantasies are less about how I enjoy, but more how I think the other enjoys me. Like how I I try to make sense of the other's desire for me. Right, right, exactly. By the way, just as we go by it, we'll come back to dust uh, to object uh, on a second, but which is also really, really interesting. We haven't talked about it at all. But another really interesting feature of this theory of Lacan, um, s- philosophers have sometimes struggled with the question of what sometimes they call other minds. Uh, and there have been a number of philosophers uh, who have, have cut and caught up in this, this question of other minds, and they've answered it with a kind of solipsism, as philosophers call it. Solipsism is the idea that really, I am the only subject. Everyone else is a kind of a machine. Um, I'm so completely cut off from what they think that I, I sort of negate it altogether. Um, I remember having a, 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 a professor in graduate school who knew uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein, the great uh, German in philosopher transplanted to England. And he said that Wittgenstein was not only fascinated by this idea of solipsism, that maybe you are the only subject, uh, but he actually, <laughs> this was John Findlay. He said, actually, he believed that Wittgenstein actually thought this of himself. He was the only actually existing human subject. Anyway, the Lacanian view absolutely rules that out. Not only is solipsism impossible, but uh, this idea that I'm the only subject, every one of us is, you might say, first of all, in the other. And we have to, in a certain sense, reclaim ourselves we have to win ourselves to become ourselves in other words we have to find a way to be an independent self uh not simply repeating or second guessing the other but actually taking over some kind of territory of desire as our own yeah there's a they call it you know joint attention where the child at a certain age becomes interested in where the parents' eyes are looking at, and they start to, to attend themselves to where the attention of their parent, like where that alights, where that sits. And I think of it in terms of even as an adult, when you you know fall in love and you, you encounter somebody else, uh, something of their desires start to become yours. You start to take an interest in the things they take an interest in. And they start to feel like your desires so much so that people talk about, oh, I find my authentic self almost like, oh, this desire was in me and I, I never encountered it till I met you. But actually at a more radical level, potentially that desire was birthed in you. You know, the other person didn't so much uncover a desire, but 
you were born again, you were a new desire formed in you. But right from that beginning, when the infant is looking at where, where's, and you talk about this in the book, we talk about how we are pretty much seemingly the only animals that have this really this white part around our eyes. So it's very easy for us to see where the other is looking. And that is incredibly important to us. Yes, exactly. It's it's really a remarkable uh, fact of, uh, of not just the higher primates, but all the mammals. We're the only one with this white cornea that um, you might say are the the sort of the sort of theater curtains of the pupil that we follow. We, it, it, we we're enabled by this white zone all around the pupil to track what someone's looking at. At a, even at an amazing distance, we can see across a, a, a broad boulevard. We can see quite precisely where someone's gaze is 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 aimed, and mm -hmm. especially, of course, when it's on us. Yes, yes. Um, so, the, I mean, my favorite part of the book actually it was when you linked Dasting to Objet Putia, right? That's because that's always been, you know. Kind of, I've, I've always felt that I've had a half decent grip on this enigmatic term, but uh, but your book gave me uh, for me the clearest kind of uh, way of understanding that and its relationship to this this very basic question of the mother other's desire. Um, do you want to talk a little, give us a little bit of background to to that object? Yeah. One of the most important features of background to put out first is. Lacan himself didn't, it, it really appears that he chose not to try to clarify this relation too much. In fact, to my knowledge, he only mentions the relationship of Das Ding and Objet A once, which is completely astonishing. Um, later in his life, he says, if I had one really signal contribution to the history of Freud's thought, it was objet A. That was it. That's what I really brought to the table that was new. Um, but it, 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 in the 16th seminar, so quite late in his teaching, I mean, he's, all, he's, he's, he's over 70 years old, he lets this very, very brief little uh, note drop. He says, objet A is what tickles das Ding from the inside. It's <laughs> yeah. really, really amusing and but fascinating um, sentence. Dust, the object, the object I is what tickles dust ding from the inside, indicating a very intimate relationship between these two concepts. You, um, I mean, one of the clearest ways you described it was that example from Freud. I don't know if you want to mention it, but about the young, the young woman who went, went into the shop, felt this mm -hmm. sneering grin. Um, again, that was like, I get, that was an incredibly clear example, I think, of how these two link together. I don't know if you want to mention that. It's a beautiful example for a lot of reasons, um, not least of which is the, the this little case vignette appears in the unpublished what we now call the project for a scientific psychology. In fact, that was Freud's name for this, this bunch of notebooks he sent to his friend, Wilhelm Fleece. But the, the idea uh, of, of, the, of Das Ding is laid out just 
a dozen pages or so before this little case vignette of a young woman he calls Emma. And Emma has this terror of going into shops. And she really gets traumatized when she goes into a shop and she feels that the two assistants in the shop are laughing at her. Uh, and she rushes out of the shop in an absolute you know, tizzy. She's really, really deeply upset, but doesn't understand why. And Freud works with her and recovers, helps her to recover a memory in which as a young girl, she went into a shop and the older shopkeeper, much older apparently, uh, than these two shop assistants who laughed at her or at the shop, so she thought, this man groped her genitals through her skirt. And while doing so, he had this, this grin on his face. And the grin, of course, was exactly performing the function we were just attributing to Dustin, to Objet uh, A. It's kind of like the visual evidence of an otherwise unknown and unseen and dreadfully unfathomable desire on the part of the other. What is this guy doing? What, what gratification is he taking from this? This of course also is at an age when Emma was too young to really understand a sexual advance. Mm -hmm. So she's in a certain sense doubly mystified and the ground is laid for a kind of trauma, which the, she gets when these shopkeepers years later appear to be laughing at her. The smile comes back and now it's traumatizing because she somehow can repose the question that she was never able to answer. What are these people after? What do they want? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the, the kind of that very early kind of experience of the enigmatic grin and the inability to really conceptualize what was going on then returns in her adult life. And, that yes. kind of, and that's why it tickles the dasting. It kind of like draws it back into the present. Exactly. And the tickling in this case is excruciating. Yes. Um, yeah, precisely. Um, yeah, and this very much um, um, relates to, to what we were talking about last time, that, that this uh, question of this potentially traumatic question of the desire of the other is in our usual dealings with our fellow human beings, it's remaindered. It's, 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 it's almost completely out of court, you might say. It just doesn't come up. We are habituated to acting with one another as if we're breezily going along without a second thought and certainly without any anxiety. We simply expect everybody to play their role in very everyday intercourse. Um, the hi, how are you discussion we had last time is the kind of epitome of this, where we have all these ways of convincing ourselves that we know perfectly well what everybody's about. Uh, so we preclude any exposure to this potentially traumatizing question. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's what Objet A does. Objet A could be anything. It could be any little trivial detail, which suddenly makes you realize, uh-oh, wait a second. I don't know what's going on here. There's something in this person that I don't understand. And then, of course, you're overwhelmed 
with a terrible pang of anxiety. Yeah, so is this why, I mean, you could say that, and this brings us to this concept of jouissance a little bit, but um, that this is always connected with some sort of impossibility, impenetrability, prohibition, that there's there's things that we like, there's things that we can take pleasure in, but this, what we're talking about here is a type of jouissance, a pleasurable suffering. It's something that um, is always connected with the real. Uh, is yeah, great. That's the perfect time to pose that question. The, what we really need to remember always with Lacan is that anxiety is the flip side of desire. That what distinguishes anxiety in the human being, and effectively this was already Freud's claim, um, he never makes it, I would say, fully explicit, but it's implicit, I would say, and also in Lacan, that anxiety you, is something animals don't have. Animals have fear, uh, but we have fear of what we don't know, of what we can't see around the corner. An animal needs, you might say, a rustling sound around the corner to alert it that something's around the corner. We can be terrified by the silence. We can be terrified by somebody who looks too buttoned up, too smooth, too cool. Um, and uh, part of what this means is that in the rare moment when we do get this anxious opening on the unknown desire of the other, we are made anxious by it. But what's crucial, and this is where the problem of what in French is called jouissance, this enjoyment is the usual translation in English. We enjoy this anxiety, or there is something in the anxiety that is enjoyable. And what is that? This is the way in which the unknown desire of the other is inevitably related to, it's almost an opportunity for learning something about my own desire. I'm attracted to this vortex of the unknown, even as it's causing me very deep uh, anxiety and, and destabilization. Yeah. Well, um, in light of all of this talk of the unknown, the desire of the other, uh, moving this into the kind of the central aspect of the book, which is a theory, a Lacanian theory of religion. Um, there's something you say in chapter two, which is fascinating. And um, this is probably maybe one of the philosophical imports of psychoanalysis is uh, in philosophy and in Kantian philosophy, there is the notion that we experience the world through certain categories. I experience the world <clears throat> um, in a, through my mind and through the categories of my mind, but then also there is reality in itself that I cannot penetrate. So there's the in itself, uh, that is impenetrable, and then there's the appearance, how it appears to me. And one of the things you mentioned in the book is actually that experience of life potentially comes from our very first experience of the other, is that there's the appearance of, say, the mother who is there, uh, and then there is this enigmatic part of them, which we don't seem to have access to, which fascinates us and frightens us and it has all this allure 
And so that that early experience is kind of mapped onto potentially how we go into the world and how we experience reality itself. Um, and then I guess this kind of then brings us to the religious impetus in many ways is one way you could say is that the, the religious individual is perhaps initially a person who experiences the world of appearance and then feels that behind this appearance is some sort of of otherness that we cannot penetrate mm. is that is this the kind is this a link towards then a, a kind of a Lacanian kind of approach to the that initial religious experience yeah and, and I think you could say uh that First of all, Freud, even in the very brief passage where he introduces this idea of the unknown thing in the other, he, he says this provides the template. It provides the sort of first um, formative experience of the unknown in a sort of focused region. In the case of the mother, uh, of course, it's right beside me. And, but then he says this experience of dividing the other person into some part that is known and I can see and recognize it, that's precisely this sort of imaginary mirror reflection that I recognize a fellow human being over there, but also retains this zone of something I don't get and don't understand. Freud then says, well, this experience and this matrix of the known and unknown mix that becomes the human relationship to all objects. Mm, yep. What my task or an activity of cognizing all objects repeats this basic relationship between something I see and recognize, but then I can pose the question, well, what is it that I'm not getting? Mm. What's missing? What's unknown? And I think that, again, there's something being said here. You were mentioning Kant and the way Kant thinks about um, uh, my, the categories that make the world meaningful and interpretable to me. But then there's, of course, this, what Kant calls das Ding an sich, the thing in itself, which is closed to me. I can, I can only know the way it appears to my senses. I can't know how it is in itself. Yeah, the Lacanian slash Freudian idea here is, is even more radical. Yeah. It's that... I am the being and perhaps the only being, perhaps other animals are not really po uh, uh, capable of this. I'm the being who's always haunted by the dimension of the questionable. Everything I see uh, contains this potential of posing a kind of question mark in my path. Uh, and by the way, one way we can know this is the animal, to go back to the animal for a second, in experiencing its, uh, its umwelt, its, 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 its surroundings. It gets a question, you might say, certainly animals are certainly capable of, of wondering what's up, yeah. <laughs> Posing a, experiencing a kind of question, but that's mostly a matter of maybe hearing a rustle seeing a flash of light, seeing a motion, and the animal will turn its attention to see what's going on over there in the thicket. But human beings, I, I don't know how confident to be about this, but it, it seems tempting 
to say that human beings are the only animal that can be freaked out by silence mm-hmm. or by lack of motion. They kind of go, oh, it's too quiet in here. Yes. And something by a sense weird, of something weird is going on. <laughs> like almost like a sense of being looked at, but like whenever a human being can be alone in a room. I, I remember Dar- Darren Brown did this. He did a very interesting show. I think it was called How to Convert an Atheist. Uh, Darren Brown's a magician. Uh, he's very big in the UK. And he um, he got people to go into, I think it was the basement of a church on their own, um, and who didn't believe in God or angels or demons or devils or any of that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, showed how a lot of the people really got freaked out by the silence, even though they didn't yeah. consciously believe in any supernatural beings. Interestingly, he, he, tr- he did this to choose somebody who didn't get freaked out to try to convert them for the show. <laughs> uh, it was very, very interesting. But, but that, that sense of putting the person alone in a dark room who doesn't believe there's anything supernatural and yet somehow feels that they're being gazed upon. They feel, is that the experience? Yeah. 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 I did write about this. I I kind of wish I had, although um, I think my editor who who insisted on killing so many of my darlings um, um, in editing the book probably would have edited this out also, but yeah, we, I didn't talk about it, but you could say, um, this is a, a, a wonderful way to, to, to frame the human experience of the divine. The divine comes to us precisely as what is excessive in silence mm-hmm. or the other of silence or the presence of silence or the question that arises when you're immersed in silence, mm-hmm. something more. What more is there? What is this? What do I? What am I hearing in silence? Uh, something like that. So this idea of das Ding carries over into the what you could think of as kind of the primal experience of the divine uh, as being what haunts. I'm more and more in love with this word, <laughs> this yeah. concept of haunting. What haunts the otherwise ordinary, familiar world. And again, another another example of this on a very mundane level, I suppose, is the people who get freaked out and think there's a stranger outside when there's silence. Like the, there's a there's literally no sound, and that no sound generates the sense of some presence that is threatening, that is imposing, that's in the cupboard, that's under the bed. Yeah. Right, 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 right. And and we have to remember whenever we're talking like this, um particularly when I get sort of intoxicated with this notion of the haunting silence or being haunted simply by by my very consciousness. This is not, you mistake it if you leave it out there as if the thing, the unknown thing is always in the other. The real uh, key point is the ultimate unknown thing is in myself. It is I myself at some level. I don't know myself. I am a, a stranger. I am a mystery. I'm a threat. Yes. To myself. Yes. 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 Um, so then you and this will bring in the famous triad, maybe of the imaginary, symbolic, and the real. But one of the things you do in, in the book is look at how 
we in different ways try to respond to this or protect ourselves from this experience and that you know broadly speaking you can you can see uh religions of the imaginary the symbolic and the real uh as ways of i suppose attempting to make sense of or manage or as i say wrestle with this otherness that we're speaking about should we start with the oh i also i do have a question with you about uh, maybe I'll, I'll give you this question before we get into that and anybody who's watching live write down questions in the chat box on the youtube because i'll have a look at those in a wee bit so type away um you know it, in many ways what you're doing in the book is yes you're looking at this dimension of the unknown the dimension of this uh, traumatizing and alluring experience but one of the most predominant experiences of religion today maybe is uh what I would call maybe a religion of pure positivity, a religion of pure narcissism, or like the religion that says, like, and I'm thinking of the new age here, like the religion that says, well, everything is one, there is no otherness, kind of almost like a narcissistic religion, a religion where um, everything is a reflection of me, but I'm a reflection of everything. And um, the and this is the religion of kind of maybe kind of psychedelic enlightenment or tantric sex or uh, self-achievement, optimization, but kind of a sense in which you can experience, a, I guess, a pure positivity. Um, where, where, do you, where would you fit that or how, how do you think about that type of experience in the contemporary world um, in light of this? Yeah, that's a complicated question um because it seems to me that i have two completely opposing um things to say about that on the one hand i agree with you that, that there's something narcissistic at least that's the great danger of that positivity you're talking about this kind of identification between the 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 the, the, the mere self just me there's little old me and the infinite there's a terrible um, danger here of kind of missing uh, the absolute chasm, you know, between between me and the universe, um, the, the, me, the little speck. Uh, at the same time, there's something, it seems to me, um, profoundly right. I mean, the mystics, so many of them centered their mystical vision or experienced it on precisely such an outlandish equation that little speck in the middle of nothingness is that is me is is god mm -hmm. um so i'm very profoundly ambivalent about this um but 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 one thing that is for sure if you are going to experiment with this 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 intersection between the self and the infinite or between the self and the absolute between between the self and god at some point you're going to have to to allow at the very heart of the entire problematic something like this dimension of not positivity but negation, negation of, yeah of what is intrinsically out of sync and a question to itself on both sides of the divide, I am a question to myself, and maybe the most mind-blowing conception of the divinity is 
the divine is a question to itself. Yes, yes, no, and th this connects very deeply with, you know, what we're trying to do, what I'm trying to do with power theology is the idea that, and this is what I love about the book, is that that potentially what unifies us with everything is yet yeah, not the not the positivity, not the sameness, but rather that in the same way that we are divided, reality is divided. That that we connect with everything precisely because everything is not connected with itself, and um, and that's the kind of religious experience that um, this kind of idea kind of leads to. Um, I find that very fascinating. Yeah, yeah. What what if, and I think, by the way, uh, another strange thing about Lacan as a thinker is he, um, far more than Freud, um, refers to the other great figure, perhaps the greatest, I would say the greatest figure of German idealism of the 19th century in the wake, in the, in the, in the, in the aftermath of Kant, uh, Hegel, Georg Hegel, um, who born in the year Beethoven is born, born in 1770, doesn't live quite as long as Beethoven, but uh, Hegel's idea is precisely what you're thinking, that, that, that the infinite is, you might say, willing to allow utter otherness into itself. So that, for instance, um, as Hegel sees it, um, Hegel didn't live long enough to, um, to see Darwinism. But I think Hegel, had he been able to know Darwin and Darwinism, I think he would have said, wow, this is exactly what I'm talking about. The absolute with a capital A, which really is a kind of homonym for, for God. The absolute is so is 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 capable in fact it's the essence of the absolute to allow an infinite number of weird strange beings to evolve into reality yeah and then they pass out of reality into extinction now we're told 99% of all the species that have ever lived on this planet are now extinct this kind of unbelievable theater of rebirth of new stranger forms um is it is it conceivable that the divine creation doesn't finish on the sixth day and rest on the seventh where everybody's kind of been perfectly you know rendered in their particular body and role what if what is divine is precisely this openness to the absolutely new openness even to something uh, almost, you know, completely playful, completely unexpected, complete departure, um, outlandish animals. And isn't this exactly what we see? We see this kind of crazy zoo of the most astonishing things. Um, the more you know about the living things on this planet, the more you think God has a fantastic sense of humor. So. Yes. I mean, it seems like that's, you know, to make these connections go like the the kind of the ocean, the notion of um, a self-divided God and, you know, Christ, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is potentially a religious way of saying what we see in a multiple 
in multiple traditions in modern physics we see quantum indeterminacy uh, in mathematics we see incompleteness theorem in biology evolution all of these are different ways in which things are not at one with themselves the biological organism is not at one with itself and generates incredible complexity or democracy the not at oneness of the social body that generates society um quantum mechanics the the not at oneness of 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 quantum reality you know is what bursts everything that that and i just find this you know fascinating that that potentially you know all of these are pointing in this hegelian direction which is that actually reality itself is not one or many it's not one it's a kind of like a uh and maybe the name of god in some respects is the name of that antagonism itself yeah 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 yeah, yeah. i so, think we mentioned this last time briefly but it's it certainly has helped me in trying to navigate these ideas um Again, we have to sort of remember, I'm sort of filling in the blank that Lacan expressly refused to fill in. So this, all this enterprise of this book I've written is really kind of dangerous in the sense that it, it's, not, it's not the Lacanian theory of religion. It's a Lacanian theory of religion where Lacan himself refused to give one. But one way to talk about this, this notion of a divinity um, and by the way, it's, it's also not a book. My book is not a book that says there is a God. It mm -hmm. says there is in us this worshipful posture, which is complicated, but rooted in this problematic of the unknown. Um, one way to get this idea that God is not the kind of creator that we thought he was, with a kind of blueprint for all these beings that he's going to populate the garden with but rather god may be a kind of precisely a kind of openness yeah. a kind of pure openness to an unlimited number of beings unlimited number of as yet unknown undreamt beings one way to get this is very approximate it's not you, know, you can't take it very far but it, it evokes it in imagination which i've sometimes used this as with my students imagine the traditional creation story where God in seven days comes up with, you know, the separation of the waters and the land and the creatures that crawl on it and so on and so forth. Well, just stick with that for a second. The first thing God would have to create before he can start, you know, separating the waters and the land and making the animals and the human beings, the first thing he would have to do would be in a certain sense to create empty space. He would have to create the great vacuum, the great open nothingness in which all these things can exist. Mm. In this sense, it's the precise opposite of what you were just referring to as positivity. The very first divine act is negativity. Yes. Opening the zone of the nothing mm -hmm. in which things can come to be. Have you heard of the um have you heard of the ontological argument for the non-existence of God at all? An Australian philosopher, Gaskin, I think his name was, came up with it, where he basically he says, um, it's kind of playful as a parody, but he says, right, you know, if uh you know, if God is that than which none greater can be conceived, 
then greatness is in direct proportion to uh you know like ability as in if 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 Mike Tyson wins a boxing match it's not that impressive but if I beat Mike Tyson in a boxing match that's really impressive so that's much better so he says the weaker God is and creates the whole universe the greater God would be and the ultimate would be if God didn't exist but created everything that would be the ultimate strength so therefore God doesn't exist but it's kind of it's kind of funny because I find it in one sense nothingness potentially is the creative force that creates everything <laughs> it is the, yeah it is the eternal you know God is the name for the void that out of which everything arises it makes possible yes, yes. Everything else. Yeah. yeah so and this is uh if it's a name of an atheism it can also equally well be the name of a radical theism so someone like Meister Eckhart, I think we touched on Eckhart a little bit last week, where Eckhart says the true power of God, even the true creative power of God, is rooted in God's self-withdrawal, in the canotic self-emptying of God, which is something like, it is not equal to, but it's something like that opening up of pure emptiness of space. It, space is the first thing that has to be created before you fill it with stars and galaxies and all the rest of it. Yes. There's one of the things I like about predestination, interestingly, in the religious sense. Um, so there's two things. One is, and Shizek writes on this, it's very good, that one of the great things about predestination is if you believe that you're predestined for heaven or hell and there's nothing you can do, it's been decided from the beginning of time, then there's no reason to do good works because for, you know, in order to get into heaven, because you can't do anything. So in one way, what it does is it allows you to be a truly ethical creature, because you may still be going to hell, you may be going to heaven, doesn't make any difference if you help somebody. So therefore, you just help somebody, if you know, you want to help somebody. So one is, yeah, it kind of creates the possibility of an ethical subject. But the other interesting thing about it is, and I think conservatives are often better at this in religion is it it connects with a, an impenetrability of the absolute is like there's a part of the absolute that's really frightening you don't know whether you're going to heaven or hell it's like the dusting that's and it's completely unintelligible you can never know whether you're going to heaven or hell it creates anxiety in you and you have to live in you basically have to find a way to live in the world not knowing the, the the dusting the intention so there is the kind of the familiar god that loves you and cares for you and all of that but then, then there's this dimension where you do not know and i think where radical theology comes in is it just adds another turn to that and it says not only do you know not know whether you're going to go to heaven or hell god doesn't know either right that's the that's the radical move is the unknowing isn't and here's the weird thing I told you about this and I, I'm very confused because I told you I was wanting to write a book called The Unknowing God and you were like you're writing a book called The Unknown God and I'm like did I hear you say that or something because I've been writing that for the last year but <laughs> but the, the idea of the book that I'm trying to explore is uh, when when the Apostle Paul saw Agnostos Theos famously in Corinthians of course it's a uh, you it's the unknown God but actually you can read it literally and you can say, well, you can also read it as the unknowing God, <laughs> not the unknown God, but the God that also does not know. So that's the kind of start of the book. Um, but and of course, this is kind of not theistic or atheistic. It's more just a way of saying that 
there's something novel and spontaneous potentially at the core of everything that that is not deterministic mm. yeah and and of course um i i i i think i've always been somewhat sensitive to this but writing this book made me infinitely more sensitive to it that when we get caught up in the question will i survive death or will i not will i still be or will i be nothing um this is on my reading uh psychoanalytically um inspired reading this is a disaster uh of the religious potential yeah. when i get caught up in in this question anxiety ridden question will i die and be gone or will i be somehow taken up into some afterlife this uh distracts us from the real um uh, transformative question, the really inspiring question, the question that breathes the infinite into my experience, which is not about the future. It's about right now. Yes. The That's astonishing yeah. thing is that I exist right now, this yep. absolute moment, this not the future. Deferring it to the future is like writing a check that won't be cashed for, for, for 40 years. The really astonishing thing, and by the way, the mystics are, are the people mostly who bring us back to this unbelievably simple but unbelievably profound question. The question is not about the future. If you get stuck in the future, you, you lose it. It's in the present, the yeah. astonishment that I exist at all. And maybe, and I, so, and I talked about this at Wake. This is kind of maybe one of the themes of Wake is I talked about the question, is there life after death? And the the kind of thing I was exploring there was the a possible psychoanalytic answer to that question, which is there is life after death, and we are the evidence of it. That to to be alive is to be castrated, to have actually passed through death. That that weirdly, a psychoanalysis, I, in one sense, I think proves the existence of life after death because that is the the idea to be a subject is to be marked by death. Mm. fundamental loss this is and very good yeah okay. yeah yeah that's great yeah very yeah. helpful yeah and, and you know so to almost see that as I, so i'm trying to then orient a religion of that where it basically it does answer the question but answers the question in that way <laughs> yes and that yeah. we are marked by death yeah that's great i really like that yeah. well here then let's uh, before we open it up to everybody else, we haven't even got to the core of the, the third, the second uh, section, which is, I think, how you beautifully describe, I suppose, what you could call three symptomatic kind of responses to this experience. Um, do you want to kind of briefly kind of go through these? The Greek, when you talk about the Greek and the Jewish and the Christian, um, but like uh, as almost three different communal responses. Well, they, they line up with the three categories that you mentioned a half hour ago, the imaginary, the symbolic, and the real. Um, the, the Greek religion, so mediated by myth and by these, these, these characters who even the Greeks, I think, <laughs> regarded them as <laughs> inseparable from myth with all of its kind of um, unbelievable 
unbelievability. I mean, the Greeks themselves, I think, a lot of modern people have struggled with this. What did the, what the Greeks really believe with their myths? Well, I don't, I don't think they would have used the word believe. Um, yep. Uh, but and these, the, and these, uh, these images and myths—they're like basically—they're like us. This is the imaginary. I mean, these gods are jealous and angry, and they're lustful and they're vengeful. And so there's a really interesting sense in which they seem very, very powerfully anthropomorphic. These, yeah, you know. that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then the Greek uh, sense of transcendence is is. Um, perfectly at home in this anthropomorphic, anthropomorphic kind of uh, um, framing. Um, and then you get the problematic of the symbol of the, of the signifier really centered in Judaism where, and of course, a gigantic step, absolutely crucial step toward Das Ding. What is this voice that apprehends, that, that accosts, Abraham and basically brings him in face to face with the the offer of the covenant that that this this voice of the burn from the burning bush that accosts Mo Moses is a perfect embodiment of this unknowable other uh precisely where the question is precisely what does this other want of me this incarnates now uh in the experience of Abraham and Moses um the psychological and now theological impact of of the this notion of dusting and then the question quite quite understandably becomes what how do we name this thing and and the and the jewish answer is you don't you scrupulously refuse any adequate naming so what you might have called god no you you have to just use hashem which in Hebrew is simply the name. By saying God is the name, Hashem, I worship Hashem. I'm self-conscious that I'm worshiping something which I don't know how to speak. I don't adequately understand what it is I'm talking to, what I'm appealing to. So much so that, you know, at this point you would say, well, why didn't Lacan, if he wanted to sort of really champion a particular religion, Judaism would surely be it. I mean, this is the Lacanian religion par excellence, the religion of the word, of the signifier, mm. and of all, all the unconscious cargo of the signifier, the unconscious potential of signification, uh, that we never truly know what we say. And even when we hear someone else say something, we're always left with a margin of unknowing. What did they really mean? Okay, I heard what you said, but what are you really trying to communicate to me? What are you really doing with me here? Judaism would appear to be the Lacanian religion par excellence. So where does Christianity come in? Well, Christianity now shockingly returns Das Ding, where it was originally experienced, the fellow human being who is standing in front of me, eyeball to eyeball, I'm, we're, we're looking at each other and I'm wondering who and what is this other and what do they want with me? Mm -hmm. And to demand then that I embrace this other with unqualified acceptance and love, even when 
I don't know whether they are a friend or an enemy. I unqualifiedly embrace them anyway. This, yeah, this would seem to be the ultimate uh, religious formation on Lacanian grounds, where, where, the, where Dusting is returned to its original site in the fellow human being that's exactly across the table from me. So yeah, that, I mean, that, this is what I love in that section is it's basically what, what I see you do in religion is paint a picture of a type of return <laughs> to the other. Um, and you see this in, the, in, in, the, in what Jesus says, which, I mean, I don't want to simplify too much, but you could say, right, the, the, the Christian church is precisely a defense against this, that we haven't had, we have individuals and we have people who kind of talk about this idea, um, but it's never... It, you know, it's hard to find it in institutional forms, uh, maybe little bits in the Quakers or something like that. But um, even finding, like for me, the late Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a theologian of this idea that he was yeah. he was moving towards this notion that that the Christianity and the the message of Christ, this message, is fundamentally that you have to tarry with and be open to the other in in their unknownness in their impenetrability in their anxiety producing dimension that we somehow remain open and in and in doing that that there's a fulfillment of religion yes exactly and and then the other big um push the other big point in the book is to say this is where the christian the, the would-be Christian or the Christian enthusiast hits the brick wall, um, having, having maybe felt for a moment, ah, Christianity wins in the contest of religions. <laughs> it comes closer to the unconscious of Lacan than, than any of them, which I think it does. It also then marshals the most extensive and most problematic defenses, uh, symptomatic resistance, and how does it do it? It does it precisely by turning the real. Yeah, loving the enemy, loving the neighbor is hard enough. Loving the enemy is a real problem. Yes, you are then faced with something like what Lacan called the real, embracing the real. That would have been, by the way, an alternative title. <laughs> embracing the void could be embracing the real. But how do you avoid avoiding? I mean, how do you? How do you avoid this, this terror? Well, you, I think you, you do what Christianity unfortunately did, was you, you cease to really focus on this life, you focus on the next one, and you cease to focus on the other Christ in the form of the person who I'm talking to, or even just the person I'm sitting across from and I haven't yet had the courage to talk to them. That was the Christ that this, the, the itinerant rabbi, you know, Jesus, pointed us toward. The Christ moment, the moment where we are really truly brought over into the divine, is the moment where we're reaching out to the fellow human being who's right in front of me. Yes. Christianity, unfortunately, finds it almost impossible to resist the temptation to elevate the Christ way out of the homeless person I have to step over to get to the restaurant. The Christ is elevated and taken up onto the right hand of the Father, and there he, he rules with a crown. 
in some other dimension, which hopefully we might someday get to if we're really good boys and girls. This transcendentalizing, this kind of lifting up into another realm of the Christly, of the, of the, of the, the challenge of Christ, of the, of the challenge of love, of acceptance, the challenge of the Lacanian real, what we don't understand and, and don't, uh, in a certain sense, can't stand. Yeah. And this is what makes Christianity so dangerous to itself. The irony is, of course, it's not just dangerous to other people, by the way, it has been. It's, I make the argument without really giving it enough, mm, enough real proof, but I make the argument that Christianity has not only been the world's most, pop, you know, most popular religion, the most often assumed religion, but it's the most dangerous religion, the most violent religion. And I think that it, it ironically comes from the way it came closer. It came terrifyingly close to our internal truth. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned kind of three different responses. I mean, I see if I get you right on this, but I kind of generally kind of go where you've got sacrifice. You've got like, if I want to, you know, the, the the imaginary gods that are a bit like me, I don't know how to appease them, but I'll do sacrifices, I'll pray, whatever. Then there's also the the um, the law, which is the, kind of the symbolic god, you know, I'll, I'll defend myself against the desire of God by following certain set of laws. And then in Christianity, you mentioned the symptom of belief. And you, you know, you mentioned how, like out of all the religions, Christianity is the one that's most interested in belief, correct belief that you don't get in a lot of these other religions. Um, yet, can you help me understand, like, why is that a central symptom or of Christianity belief? Like, what what's going on there that belief is has uh, for good and for bad, I suppose, because it, it created. I mean, you know, there's a lot of sophisticated thinking comes out of the Middle Ages or whatever. But do you, can you help me understand the the connection there? Um, you're right. I do. I do take that risk. Um, I think a lot of people would be tempted by the idea that religion of all sorts can be reduced to belief. And, and you're right. I basically say no. Christianity invented the religion of belief. That even Judaism doesn't invest yeah. in belief in the same way. And certainly not Greek polytheism. Um, I give one of these writers, a French writer who wrote a book um, about uh, uh, the co-problematic of belief. I, I, I know, did the Greeks really believe their myths is, is the title of the book. And I give him an awfully hard time because I don't, I think it's the wrong question. The, the beliefs, the Greeks did not believe their myths at all. It was, the myths were in another category, which were, they were, beyond and immune to contradiction. There was no problem if you had myths that said totally opposing things because belief was not the point. Logical consistency was irrelevant. Um, they didn't believe them. They were simply inspired by them. Um, Is it a little bit like I always, uh, you know, I saw a joke one time, but it was a, a company that was making mugs and it made a mug world's greatest dad. 
And they said, listen, we can only make one of those to be logically consistent. You know, there can only be one world's greatest dad. So I kind of think like, it's the same thing. If you say my dad's the greatest or my child's the most beautiful child in the world, you're not literally making a claim that your child is objectively the most beautiful child in the world. And yet also you can't say to them, yeah, but you don't really believe that. Like there's a way in which you're, they're fully believing it, but, but it's a different category of belief. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then there's a there's a there's a way of seeing how this embrace of belief, this sort of uh, invention of the of the whole cult of credo of of I believe we believe, uh, how it solves the enormous existential crisis that Christianity opens if we do take seriously the Christ teaching that our absolute call is to lovingly embrace not only our neighbor, but our enemy. If that's the game, this is, puts us in immediately in an, an impossible, unnerving, terrifying situation. And if we then immediately resort to belief as our quintessential religious posture, Notice how it immediately excuses us from the unbearable anxiety of the Christ command to love thine enemy as thyself, not just the neighbor, but thine enemy. How? Because if we make belief the measure, then immediately all the people in the world divide into those who believe as I do. They're my brethren. They don't pose an anxiety to me because I know they have the same beliefs as me. So it holds out at least the hope that if everybody's kind of faithful enough to the belief, their faith, faithful to faith, then I am reassured that everybody who I might otherwise be afraid of and made deeply anxious by, everybody's on my side already. They're kind of approved. They're part of the sect that I belong to. They believe what I believe. Whereas the non-believers, the apostates and the heretics and the simply other people, they now are separated from, from me by a kind of chasm. They don't accept what I accept. And now I can write them off. I neither now have to really engage the challenge of love with the people who belong to my sect, because we all share the same belief and we've kind of bonded over that. And I can now rule out these people, in fact, it's going to, the only challenge is not hating these people too much, the people who don't believe as I do. So belief, you might say, immediately divides the whole of humanity in this way between the shared believers, the ones who are on my side, and the apostates who are against me. And it solves the fundamental, the prime problem of the Christ directive to embrace and love everyone. I wonder, no. if you could, yeah. I wonder if you could say that um, that Christian heresy of belief has a secular form that we see today, the secular heresy of, again, splitting people into, you know, categories, political, cultural, social belief, and you, we want to hang out with the people who believe as we do, and we want to write off the people who don't, um, That because because that, you know, we obviously in social media, we see that in on Facebook and Twitter, especially, um, that is the real the 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 way that belief uh, mitigates against anxiety that helps me 
not have to deal with the otherness of the other. Um, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We're so in, in we face this very strange situation that in modernity, which could be well defined as, at least to a certain extent, well defined as the overcoming of tribalism, mm. we've now become more tribal than ever. Yes. Yeah. We're so traumatized by the way in which people so different from me are right across the street, where our cosmopolitan and 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 often um, urban, you know, uh, rainbow of different identities, uh, something unprecedented, really, in the history of the world. How postmodernity faces us with this with this incredible proximity of difference, yeah, and. Yet, and 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 then understandably we we cope with it all too frequently by simply re-resurrecting these tribes of difference, which we can reassure ourselves, I belong to this tribe and I hate everybody else. Yeah, yeah. I mean the project, and I'll I'll finish with this and then we'll go on a few QA, but um, you know, the project of parotheology in a way is to see if we can create a liturgical structure in which through art and music and comedy uh, and spoken word, uh, we encounter what could be called the hysterical God, that reality is divided, that, that, that you know, we seek, we go into said church in order to find the answer, wholeness, completeness or whatever, but we are then confronted very slowly through the liturgy with the idea that the absolute is also a question to itself and there's an unknowing and as we become comfortable with that unknowing we become more comfortable with that unknowing within ourselves and within our neighbor and that that is a kind that's the that's basically the work that's the idea and hegel is the um the thomas aquinas of this you know and lacan uh, is but to see if actually an institution is possible that is not there to tell you what to believe or this that but but th through its liturgical form, uh, gradually reveal that this, that this dividedness you feel within yourself is redoubled within reality, and that we somehow, in making peace with that, will be more open to that dimension within ourselves and within the other. Exactly. Yeah. So as to whether that's possible, that's the interesting thing. <laughs> um, exactly, exactly right, exactly right. Just a little footnote, I, I've been yeah. reading this week um, a book uh, by a, a, a Korean philosopher who spent most of his life in Germany. Oh, I'm reading the same guy, uh, Bi Young Chol Han, yeah. Yeah, so reading The, uh, the Disappearance of Rituals, yeah. uh, one of his more recent books, just amazing. Um, amazing He's brilliant. Story. I mean, he's the reason actually I asked that question about pure positivity, because I just read his book, The Burnout Society and The Agony of Eros, and I really feel that he puts his finger on a very modern problem. And, yeah. you know, it's what he calls pure positivity and the symptoms of burnout and fatigue. That, oh, of that course, you're taking that. positivity from him. Yes, that's yes. perfect. Yeah, 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 I get it. Yeah. yeah. Cause, and so, because I lived in LA for years, as you know, and you know, I so I saw it. that is that is the mecca of the religion of pure positivity, pure self optimization, self achievement, all of that, and and so that's why I kind of am interested in going. Yes, how do we? Yeah, you know, how does that fit? Because that's almost the denial of this negativity. 
Um, but yeah, his work is, yeah, it's funny you say that because I've been very impressed with him. In fact, I want to do a book yeah. study on him. Yeah. Um, did you want to say anything else about him actually there? I think I interrupted you by my excitement. No, no, it's okay. No, it's just, I was just making the connection, which you have obviously already very much made. So. Oh, here. So here's a question I know Kate wanted to ask as we were talking about this is, she says, um, I was fascinated by the masculine feminine structures of religion in the conclusion. Um, and she mentioned like that you kind of it kind of uh, teased this, like this really interesting thing. So she was like, can you expand on this feminine logic of the non-all um, in terms of Christ and Lacan? Well, I, 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 you could say so many things about yeah. this. I mean, to begin with, I mean, I think it's interesting that that Jesus um, was so closely related with women, um, that Mary Magdalene, as well as others. You know, that this this was that, that his own teaching struck me uh, as the teaching par excellence of the non-all. Um, the non-all, of course, in a way, is is another name for for Das Ding. The non-all is a name for what I do not grasp, what is maybe ungraspable in the other and in myself. It's You could say it's the excessive, or you could simply say it's the strange and threatening. Um, but yes, and it seems to me that we're really in a new way. Um, in the 20th and 21st centuries, we're facing the embodiment of the non-all, strange and threatening, in women, in the feminine, and now, of course, in gender bending of all sorts, which now is the kind of so much the leitmotif of our culture, um, where, where the, the bending of all of the traditional identities seems to be unrelenting and and, and people seem to be lining up either on the side of tolerance or on the side of resistance and condemnation. Um, so it just yeah, seems to me that this is a this question, the question of gender um, is so coextensive almost with all the problematics um, around dust ding and and the and the religious um, yeah. that I'm trying to raise in that book for sure. If anything, I again I regret, regret that that discussion is so brief. Um, once again, I had to cut a bunch of stuff, yeah. but I, I above all, I think need to write an, another treatment of it because it's so important. Yeah. Um, and could you say like my way of thinking about it, so for people who are listening, some of you know these concepts, some of you don't, but there's this notion of the not all and the non all. And in, in one way you could think of the not all as an exception, an unknown that is outside of the circle of what we know there's the and even if you think about uh science there's kind of like there's all the things we can know and then there's maybe the unknown which is what caused it all so there's kind of a there's a big unknown but we can know in terms of the world in terms of our scientific knowledge we can kind of eventually come to know everything so there's one exception and then there's everything the non-all is more like in modern physics which is a type of unknowing that is within knowledge, not as a kind of exception to knowledge, but within knowledge where you can't know that there's the location and velocity of a subatomic particle at the same time or whatever. There's a there's an unknowing. And in the same way with love, you cannot know somebody, 
because you don't know yeah. them or in love you cannot know someone who you're with so the the logic of the non-all is everything Richard's been saying really and what we've been doing in other places in parotheology is this a kind of an unknowing that is within not within presence like a ghost of present absence do you is that a good way of describing it or yeah, and another way to another term, another dimension to add to this, um, distinguishing as you just did between the not all and the non all. The non all is a kind of uh, another name for it, another kind of way of opening it is to say the non all is an intrinsic internal excess. It's the excessive in everything. Uh, so non-all is the non-coincidence of everything, that everything is other to itself. Uh, and therefore, whenever you embrace anything, certainly another human being, you're or by the way, embrace yourself, you're embracing something that will always outrun its own container. It's excessive in its very nature. Mm -hmm. So in, in some respects, like you could say traditional religion, often God is an exception that is outside the world. But what we're talking about is the idea of the signifier God might refer to an exception that is within everything. Yeah. Yes, exactly. That, that what we traditionally call creation is universal excess, that it's the excessiveness of being itself, that everything is is caught up in the in the sort of unfolding of the excessive um i'll jump in with another question there's lots of discussion going on i forgot to say although people are doing it because or we've got a little tradition of people that say word question and then i know it's a question otherwise i can't find the questions <laughs> so there's somebody's done a question uh ken very good so i'm going to give yours uh he says is anxiety locked in then uh to how we feel if so, if we become less anxious, do our feelings also open up to the sense of the void? Okay, so is anxiety locked into how we feel? And if so, if we become less anxious, do our feelings also open up to the sense of the void? Um, does that? Okay. Yeah, that's a lovely question. I take that question to be asking about um I mean, it would be all too easy to, to take what we've said today as a kind of celebration of anxiety, uh, certainly a kind of embrace of anxiety. And I think there is something in that we have to, to some extent, achieve or aim at that, that anxiety uh, is inevitable, and that it's up to us to come to terms, you might say, to open ourselves to even what makes us anxious. However, I, I think what the questioner here is putting their finger on, which is really valuable, it seems to me, is, is there, how much possibility is there that we can better posture ourselves in the midst of the anxious and not perhaps experience it as really excruciating anxiety and i think i think this is a, a wonderful topic which we haven't talked about and and i don't talk about it much in the book and that's a, a another place i i wish really i had unfolded something here because it's really super important 
how much can we um, shift and redistribute, repose to ourselves the problematic of anxiety, um, really allowing it to, to give us what it has to give without terrorizing us. Um, and you could, I think, make the argument that what we usually call anxiety is actually the feeling we have of our defenses against the unknown. And if we can practice a kind of openness that is not so in need of defense, we could perhaps be engaging ourselves with what would otherwise make us anxious, but we're not experiencing it as excruciating anxiety. We're experiencing it as something else, as novelty, as actually greater feeling of being alive, mm -hmm. of the interest, of the, uh, of the compelling kind of energy of something really new. This is, I mean, I love, um, you know, Soren Kierkegaard and in relation to this is that, that not on this tradition of that anxiety is a symbol of our freedom and our subjectivity, uh, that to be human is to be anxious. And as you say, you know, we, we don't see this in, you know, other animals, uh, to, to be a creature of language, uh, to be a creature who in Sartre's terms is condemned to freedom. Uh, anxiety is kind of like the truth. It's the truth. And I, I don't know if this is what Lacan means. He says like anxiety does not lie. You know, it's the only <laughs> affect that doesn't lie, but there's something about, it tells us the truth about our position and what it is to be human. And if I understand B. Young Chul Han and his work, one of the things I love about it, again, is that this, this idea of, of achievement society and always trying to optimize, always trying to, uh, uh seize the day always trying to life hack and become an entrepreneur of the self and do 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 um is is a, is a way of trying to avoid the negativity of anxiety that comes yeah. actually precisely in being lazy and in not doing stuff and in not self-optimizing and in not life hacking <laughs> um just making a little note to myself here note to self you know just putting a big star behind uh, well, just before the phrase beyond anxiety. Yeah, and, you know, it's very sad that I didn't go into this more in the book because this question really prompts me to think about it again. Anxiety, of course, is, is terrible. And it's not just terrible because it makes us feel bad, which it does, but anxiety has the effect of shutting our mind down. We become... Uh, terrorized by anxiety, and we kind of lose our capacity to hear and to feel and to be open. Uh, and somehow, the the trick is is if we're ever to get a religiosity in the middle of this level of challenge, the real challenge of 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 of, of facing the unknown. Yeah, the challenge is absolutely how to really be open without anxiety. What, what would otherwise, the point is not to be anxious and somehow bust through. I think the point is actually to be where you would have been anxious, but you allow yourself to be open. How does that work? I mean, here's one way to, to come, take one half step in the direction of what we need to think through. Usually when we're anxious, we're already sensing a threat 
and we're already deploying our defenses. So we're already ready to fight. We're already ready to take you know, solid ground and resist. But we've invested in, in, in that effort, defensive effort, uh, all the energy that might have been relaxed and just let in without armor what we're encountering. Let it announce itself as what it is and, and, and react to it as we will. Um, so in this sense, anxiety is something to be resisted. But the question is how resist? Do we just simply block or do we actually open? Yeah. I mean, if, you know, a famous example of sorts of the student who comes to him and says, my, my brother died and my mother's bereft. I, should I stay with my mother and look after her or should I leave and fight the Nazis? Um, and goes to Sartre and asks, what should I do? And, you know, Sartre says, well, there's, you know, you, there's no answer I can give. Uh, one of the things I like about this example is Sartre doesn't talk about this at all, but what, what the, um, well, he does a little bit, but what, what the guy is also looking for is what does the other want? What does Sartre want me to do? You know what, not just yeah. what, yeah, what should I do? But he's also looking for not knowing what an authority figure would say. And Sartre, Sartre's response is you have to somehow be able to embrace the anxiety of not knowing and not having an answer and yet having to do something. Yeah. Um, which is often, I think, what we defend ourselves against by going to palm readers or treating the Bible like a, you know, like a the Gideon's always has all the answers at the back. Any any question you've got, there's a Bible verse for it. Or you know, we we want someone to give us the answer and somehow to be able to. And this is again why I want liturgy, like a regular place that helps us be able to through say music and art and literature to be able to stand in the unknowing that I don't know what I should do and no one else can tell me what I should do. And somehow I can enjoy and embrace that and not yes, defend yeah. against it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And that's what in the, a bygone time, uh, it still goes on. People still talk this way, but it, it's, it seems to me it's lost some of its impact. When we used to say that the spirit moves me, um, you know, the, the question of whether you should go to your to your mother and be at her side or, or go fight the Nazis, the question is definitely not one that someone else can answer for you, but your answer may be something unnameable, undefendable. It's just the spirit moves me to do this. I can't defend it even to myself. I can't explain even to myself and justify even to myself my choice, but all I know is I inexplicably am drawn to this. And that's where I have to go. Um, oh, there's a few other good questions, but I may just go to this one as a good end because we've been going for a while. And from Rich, which I like his question is, how does Richard tarry with the unknown? Do you have any, uh, he says, daily routines or any rituals or how, yeah, how have you, how do you find yourself practicing what you're you're writing about in this book uh boy that's a really good question um i do um have a um a practice my own kind of cobbled mm, together uh practice of meditation um 
which is a little bit, I, I, I remember when I was 50 years ago in college and I um, learned the transcendental meditation of Maharishi Mahashyogi was back in those days in the late, early 70s, that was the really the going thing. And it was extremely helpful to me, I have to say. I dropped out of, of college after my first year thinking I wasn't going back. And one of the things that really helped me through that very confused year was um, was learning meditation. And I now do a kind of a mixture of that transcendental um, uh, mantra-driven meditation and, and a Zen uh, sitting, um, very Zen-like meditation. I have a very good friend um, in my department who's a real Zen master, I must say. Brett Davis, I highly recommend him. Brett, um, he has, by the way, a great courses. Um, drop an ad for my my good friend. He has a great courses uh, course on on um, I forget exactly what it's called. Zen, discovering Zen or something like that. I've forgotten what he calls it. Brett Davis is his name. Anyway, he's taught me a lot about this. But I would have to say, add to this quickly. Um, it's still a for me, uh, as I think it is for anyone. It's a, it's a, it's a work in progress. Um, opening myself uh, to what is called upon in me, how to respond to some of these questions. Um, I do. I do know when I make little victories because I accept something I, I, I first of all think something I never thought before and I accept that I don't know what to say in answer to something and living a little better with that inability to come up with an answer, living a little more openly to uncertainty, uh, that's something I would say I practice every day and I would say I, to make at least some progress every day, but this is the big question. I mean, how to do that is having a really wonderful partner, my wife, my, my wife Rebecca, who yeah, who, I met and have the greatest respect for. She is wonderful. This is something really a gift to have someone as a partner who is supportive of you. Um, that's a huge help to embrace things that are challenging and just simply be open. Um, wonderful help. But it's you a, mentioned, you mentioned last week going into, you know, just you, you enjoy going into empty churches or quiet, quiet places. I mean, that's a, a ritual of sorts. I think you said that last week. That just, you know, if you're ever somewhere, you might go into. Yeah, that's a wonderful, that reminds me of something. And it's both really important and valuable to me and also embarrassing. I, some years ago, uh, was in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I was visiting another uh, really dear friend, um, Adrian Johnston is his name. He, oh yeah, read his work. He's an incredible thinker. Yeah, yeah I, very close friends with him. And I was visiting him and giving a talk out there. And um, I went up into the mountains for a day, a day off in, in Albuquerque. and. Um, and it's the it was the first time in my life I ever not only went hiking off alone, but I also stopped at a particular point for no good reason other than it just seemed like a very sweet and quiet spot. And I spent 
an hour and a half or so just sitting there and just just sitting there and just listening and watching try, a kind of meditative openness and it was extraordinary i started realizing that the place was teeming with little birds and insects and butterflies and other and, and the clouds the movements of the clouds and the rustling of the leaves and it was like the whole place opened itself to me after a while. And uh, it was really, really wonderful. Yeah. A real lesson about, you know, the lesson, the question, the lesson was a question. Why don't we do this more often? Why don't we stop and just sit? Yes. 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 That, that's, that was my, when I was, you were talking, like, that's, my daily ritual uh, I, I like to call it laziness and laziness is different from fatigue or burnout those are things that come from excess and from trying trying but there's a the spiritual discipline of laziness of of mm -hmm. genuinely going doing something non-productive uh and of course you know we don't where a lot of us can't do that a lot of people don't have time because they have to work two jobs they have to do so much so but as much as possible to carve out the space to do exactly what you're saying and um I say and you know I just call it laziness because I don't think I should call it meditation as such but I do whenever I take time and not even to try to meditate or anything just to take time to do nothing but to sit that has been profoundly helpful <laughs> profoundly helpful to me yeah yes and of course it's not only being open to what back in that moment by the side of the this rather happily lonely trail up in the mountains above Albuquerque, uh, not only was it being open to the bird or the butterfly or the trembling of the branch and the little breath of air or the changing of the sun coming out from behind a cloud, those things I was really posing myself to be really open to, but the key thing I think is also is, is being open to in that situation, sitting there over an hour and a half, what comes, what bubbles up in you? Like yeah. what's the feeling? And it could be some bad feeling. I mean, it could be, you don't, you don't, you know, but just being open to it, um, yeah. letting it happen, letting it take you, letting you, letting yourself feel it. Um, hugely valuable. Yeah, one of my favorite, I'll tell you, but one of my favorite icons, we used to, we used to run a thing called Icon, it was a monthly event, uh, call it Transformance Art, and it would often have, it was in a bar, and often there was music and DJs, and there was poets, and all of that stuff, and so uh, my friend, he's a psychoanalyst, um, who you met, Chris, Chris Fry, he, oh, yeah. yeah, he ran a, an evening, and on the, everyone came into the bar and everything was set up projectors and music and all the things that you would expect and the first 20 minutes of the event was taking everything down um, and then just creating a circle of chairs and then once we all sat down Chris said you know we often rituals can be helpful and useful and connect us but sometimes they can keep us apart and he said so tonight icon offers you nothing and then he just went silent and we all just sat yeah. <laughs> and I hated it because and I so I'm the one who's running this event so I hate it because I've got all this anxiety and anxiety of all the other people and I'm sitting there going I can't say anything and I kept silent I kept silent 
And then beautifully over time, just people made little comments and that silence was so productive and beautiful. <laughs> um, but it created so much anxiety in me initially. I was like, I can't cope with this, you know, because he didn't even explain it, didn't even explain what was happening. Just said, tonight we give you nothing. And then just sat and everyone just looked at each other and it was beautiful. Yeah. yeah, it's a cliche, and yet, and yet we don't take it seriously enough that that our mode of life in the postmodern world is is so we're always rushing somewhere to to experience something or to buy something or to, it's another phone call. We got to send another text or receive one. We gotta, we're kind of you know again in a certain sense we all know this. Mm -hmm. This is a kind of alienation and a kind of impoverishment of our whole uh consciousness that we're so running like crazy Kierkegaard as you said is such a master of this his little little essay called the present age is a perfect critique and 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 identification and critique of this problem of modernity and this is written in the beginning of, or the middle of the first half of the 19th century but but to really build into your life a kind of a refusal of for a, a, some substantial period of time, refuse to be running around, or to yes. be to be run around, yes. given the run around by all this junk, um, enormously opening and healing and enabling. Yes. Yes. Well, thank you. Listen, that's a great place to finish this conversation. And as I say, you, you know, I kind of thought that uh, maybe we can have another conversation about your uh, autobiography or the, the memoir. Um, so hopefully we can arrange to do that because I would love to continue this conversation. Um, but I really appreciate the time you've given uh, to this. And uh, a lot of us are doing the book study at the moment, reading the book together. So um, uh, I'll arrange for another conversation with you at some point great I, i'd like that too peter so thank and thank you everybody who's watching live we're going to put this up so people will be able to watch it after the fact but i appreciate you all tuning in and um take care i'm going to try and hang up on news but not hang up on richards <laughs> let's see if that works bye-bye thank you